everyone. Welcome to the Five Beer Plan. I'm Brian, and this is the ongoing saga of an everyman's ale trail. In this episode, I'll dig deep for historical beer styles, sit down virtually with Dan Potter from Archival Brewing in Belmont, Michigan, and review Asier's Wreath, also from Archival Brewing. In this segment of Tales from the Trail, I want to take a history of flight to blow the dust off the recipe books and search for historic beer styles. Brewing is approximately 7,000 years old, so over the years there are bound to be styles that have been lost over time. For those of us in the modern beer era, which includes the everyman, we tend to think very narrowly about beer styles in terms of ales and lagers and stouts and porters. If we dig deep, we'll find there is so much more. So where do we start? Honestly, this would be a year-long investigation if done right. There are so many different styles and regions steeped in the historicity of brewing that I really can't do the topic justice. So for now, I'll just whet your appetite for a little bit more. I know it's very cliche, but if you've watched any kind of television show or movie that is based in medieval times, you'll see them pouring some gold-colored liquid from flagons and drinking from goblets. Or maybe it's the image of Friar Tuck riding into town with his casks of Abbey Ale that come to mind. Anyway, these are the things I often think about when considering historic brewing. For example, I found a very interesting website from about 25 years ago where a home brewer was trying to recreate medieval English ales he'd read about in various reference books. He documented the history of the styles and the results of his attempts at reproducing them. Here's some interesting background. In England, Specifically prior to the plague in the 1300s, the most common drink of the day was ale. Ale during this time was a drink made from malted grains, water, and fermented with yeast. Malted grain would be crushed and then boiling, or at least very hot water, would be added and the mixture allowed to work. At some point, the liquid was drained off, cooled, and fermented. The ale might have been spiced, but it would certainly not have had hops as an ingredient. Beer, on the other hand, was made from malted grains, water, hops, and fermented with yeast. Hops added a measure of bitterness to the beer and also helped to preserve it. The successful addition of hops required a change in the process that ultimately had a profound effect on the resulting product. After the liquid was drained off, it was boiled again with the hops. BeerMaverick.com summarizes the topic like this. Some historical beers that could fit categories such as experimental, herb and spice, field beer, etc. may be categorized as historical beers. This category pays tribute to beers that incorporate unique brewing ingredients and or techniques that were used in the past. Within the framework of these guidelines, examples of historical beers include the South American Chicha, Nepalese Chong Chang, African sorghum-based beers, and many others. Personally, some other historical styles of note that I've had would be the Braggot, which is a step below a mead and uses honey and malt, the Gruet, which is a beer brewed with herbs that typically take the place of hops, the Grodziski, which is a smoked beer, or even the Grisette, which is a relative of the farmhouse or Saison. So as you walk your ale trail, don't be afraid to try obscure styles outside the bounds of your normal choices. You never know what you might uncover. This week's hot pack is about home brewing. Sad to say, I have yet to brew my first batch of beer. I received a Citra IPA kit two years ago for Christmas, but unfortunately, good intentions don't get beer brewed plain and simple. 
In the next few episodes, I'm going to finally start the process and share my experience with you. Traveling my ale trail, every brewer I've met over the years started out their career by homebrewing. Each story is unique, but each one has the same underlying theme. Once I began, I couldn't stop. Well, maybe you're just like me. You have the itch, but are scared of the investment, whether it be time or money. Fortunately, there are many good options out there. So, just in time for Christmas, here are a few good homebrewing starter kits. The first one comes from Northern Brewer. This is actually the kit that I have. It's a one-gallon kit that comes in at around $80. It includes everything you need to brew and bottle up your first beer with glass bottles to boot. Craft a brew. This kit is uber affordable at $50. It's another one-gallon kit that has everything that you need to brew the beer, but there are no bottles included. Mr. Beer. This is the best-selling beginner's brew kit. It comes with everything you need to brew your first beer for only $50, and it includes reusable plastic bottles. Brewer's Best. Another entry-level kit that comes in around $60. I would definitely take a look on Amazon for reviews and what you can expect. Some of these kits are better than others. Find a kit with a recipe that sounds good to you, is simple, affordable, and most of all, reusable. And keep in mind that brewing is a process. It may not turn out great every single time. And if you talk to any brewer, they will tell you the same thing. It takes a lot of practice. Happy brewing, and let me know how you do. So welcome to Barstool Banter. I'm sitting down virtually with Dan Potter from Archival Brewing in Belmont, Michigan. Dan, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me on the podcast. Yeah, good to be here. So Archival is super active on social media, and it seems like you are the cruise director for Archival for the taproom and the events. What is your actual role there at the brewery? Uh, so I'm actually doing sales and distribution, and then I handle all of the events. So I kind of think you've met me in the tap room. I'm mm -hmm. kind of transitioning out of that and going into a full-time role with uh, sales and distribution. And I'll continue to do all of the beer festivals and events also for the brewery. Excellent. And uh, how long have you been involved with Archival? Since just about the very beginning. So about, I'd say, a month and a week after they opened, I, I came aboard. How long has Archival Brewing been open? Boy, I think it's just about to be 16 months. Okay. So about a year and four months, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the brewery name itself and what it means? Well, yeah, Archival Brewing. So the concept that they came up with was to do more of a historic style beer, hence the name Archival what we like to do is we like to go out and find styles that aren't necessarily being represented or or everyone's kind of putting a modern twist on it. So what we try to find is close to the original recipe, if, if not the original recipe, and then try to recreate that. Okay. One of these guys out there, you know, uh, it's a beauty of the, the, the modern craft beer industry is, is that everybody kind of wants to take and, and make it their own. You know, you take grandma's recipe and then you substitute this for that. And then you come up with something new or something different and right. exciting. So I like to say, you know, everybody's out there trying to reinvent the wheel while we're trying to teach people how the wheel was invented. Nice. I remember when I was at the tap room, it was a year ago. 
there were a lot of unique and interesting styles that you had on tap there. So that makes a lot of sense as to where the name is coming from and what you're trying to do there. Do you get a lot of people who are really interested in the styles that you're doing? I mean, uh, you know, clearly the tap room is busy. The brewery is busy all the time. So people are definitely into your beer. It's really amazing uh, uh, how much interest there is. You know, it's like the the history buffs are coming out of the woodworks, you know, and, and people have so many questions and, you know, people will come and, and tell you a story about, you know, having that style beer in that particular part of the world in that we really did a wonderful job and it reminds them of being back there. So we are doing a pretty good job with that. And there is a considerable amount of interest. I mean, we're, we've been continuously in the past year since you've been to the tap room have been unveiling new beers and, and even more things that people have never heard of. They go, what is that style? <laughs> I've never heard of it. You know, we like to take a piece of the history of that style and attach it to the name of the beer and put some history in the description of the beer and kind of let people experience what it was like when it first was developed. And there is a lot of interest and people come back with stories. They're like, we looked into the history and, and they're like, it's really cool. And then they go, you know what? And then we learned this. And they tell us the story. And then I go, well, you know, what's really cool is that connects the dots to this whole other beer from another country. And we just go further into the story. And I find that people are really enjoying that aspect of the culture that we're bringing with the historic beer. Yeah, I love that. So I remember I'm just looking back at some of my untapped check-ins. One of the first ones I had was Ager's Wreath, which was a Sati style farmhouse ale. Killer beer, very unique. Yeah, that, you don't see very many people brewing that style. That's no. one of the oldest recipes for beer in the world. That's pretty awesome. One of the things that I like to do is to try as many beers as I can. That's like my goal. So whenever I go to a brewery, I always try to order a flight. And I know some people are like, well, you know, you don't really get the full taste of a beer if you're doing the flights, whatever the reason may be. But, but I want to put my lips on something that's unique and different. We only had time for one flight. Uh, otherwise, I would have been there probably all night. That is the beauty of the flight. And obviously, there's always going to be somebody out there that has, you know, something to say. I mean, I always joke with people. I'm like, the only way to truly try a beer is an entire pint. And, right. and I'm sure you agree with that. But with time constraints and this, that, the other thing, that's what makes the flight great. And we have to embrace it. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. Uh, another one that I had was uh, Wayne Grodziski. Oh, wow. A, yeah. a, a Grodziski Grotzer style. Grodziski. I always go give it a little Grodziski. <laughs> little so I'm Russian, not Polish, Russian. So I don't know. <laughs> right. I'm Scotch Irish. So <laughs> I'm Scottish English myself. <laughs> okay. But uh, that was no. An interesting style. That one we did uh, for the Beer City Brewers Guild Pro Am competition that they do annually. They team up a local home brewer with a professional brewer, and they get to pick the style that they brew, and then they get to brew it with the professionals, and and then enter into a big competition that they uh, they hold a little beer festival downtown Grand Rapids, and everybody judges the beers, and somebody comes out a clear winner. So we did that. It was a specialty smoked beer where we smoked the malt in the tap room. Uh, that really stunk the entire uh, tap room up. 
when we smoked the the malt and uh if you tried that beer it was very different it was good but uh it was definitely more of a novelty style drinker than a sessionable crushable beer sure but it's also another one of those historical beers that uh, nobody's ever had before right. when i looked took the name i was like i'm gonna have this because i've never had it before and so. i think there was a case for a lot of people they were like they're like well i'll take the wayne gretzky no it's wayne gradziski <laughs> You know, so we have fun with the names too. But uh, then this year, so we just uh, unveiled our Pro-Am beer for this year, which is a Keller beer. So a Keller beer is, you know, it's a light, easy drinker, but it's an aged beer. Uh, We aged it on oak in our fooder wooden fermentation vessels that we have. And uh, it came out real nice, a nice, easy drinker with well-rounded oakiness to it and really nice. So it's very cool to do styles like a Keller beer also. What is the name of that particular beer you're entering in? We called it a Frankenfooder. <laughs> Sign up like a Franconian and then named it after the fermentation device. And when uh, it was fermenting with the setup that we had, it kind of looked like a Frankenstein experiment. So we called it the Frankenfooder. Well, when I first visited the tap room. I absolutely fell in love with the atmosphere and the space. What was the inspiration behind that? When they originally came up with the idea, they just really wanted to create an open space with a relaxed atmosphere. They wanted it to be rustic and welcoming where people come in there and feel like they're at home. We've had a lot of people say it feels like they're at a ski lodge or something like that. It's just very welcoming and rustic like that. I think the the big added bonus is because the brewery went into what used to be a country club and a golf course, uh, which gives us an incredible amount of space, but it lends us this other beautiful thing because the rest of that golf course was donated to the township. And it's a, so we overlook a wildlife preserve and a Frisbee golf course. Absolutely beautiful scenery, panoramic views out of all the windows in the brewery. And it is very nice. And it's a great space to hang out at. Very cool. And that leads me kind of to the next question. When I was there, I I don't think you had the beer garden yet. Um, I think that was something that maybe was introduced earlier this year. They were still building it and preparing it. And then there was uh, quite a lengthy period waiting for the Michigan Liquor Control Commission to to complete the process of giving them a license to use that area as an additional tap room. Uh, So we didn't really receive that permit until there was snow on the ground. So yeah, we didn't really unveil the, the beer garden until this spring. If anyone looks at the website for Archival, there's some great pictures showing the beer garden. It definitely looks very inviting, very relaxing. Um, I think, uh, what's dog friendly? Oh, yeah. Um, we had so much fun with that. It being dog friendly, is, it was just so cool. You could just hang out there and people bring their dogs and the dogs just love it there. I've seen some dogs really were timid at first and not sure what to do and now they come there on a regular basis and they're just having the time of their lives like they're friends with all the employees everyone's always got a treat in their pocket that's fun it is a lot of fun so do you also use that for events we do so there's been quite a bit of interest in uh, weddings graduation parties we do have a corporate event coming up in february nice for a local apple producer and uh they rented out the space and doing their own event there, um, which is really cool and exciting. 
we have to have a full-time event coordinator on staff now for the amount of interest that's coming in about the space. Well, that's that's a great opportunity. And I think one of the things as a as a brewery, I think you have to figure out ways to be able to uh, to supplement the brewery business itself. Is the, um, the beer garden, is it just a three-season space or do you keep it open year-round? I think that's really like... Uh, up in the air, like we're not really sure. Okay. Uh, at this point, uh, we have you know, three fire pits out there, and yeah, people dress appropriately. They can go out there. It's welcome and open to anybody anytime. But if there isn't any staff staff down there, they do just have to make the trek up the stairs into the main tap room <laughs> and and go up to the bar and order from there, and and then they can go right back on out and hang out into the beer garden, whether it's staffed or not. We'll still allow you to hang out well we know that the uh the michigan craft beer community are are pretty hardy so i'm sure there'll be people out there w- waiting through the drifts just so they can sit outside by the fire well when we did that uh the michigan brewers guild does their annual winter beer festival outdoors at the ballpark about 3.7 miles down the road from us every february and uh, this past year was our first opportunity to use the beer garden and everybody was already dressed in their full winter gear to do this outdoor beer festival. So we invited all the, uh, the industry people, people from other breweries that were staying in a town to come out and we fired up the fire pits and we fed everyone and we had a real good time out there. And that was about the first time we really got to use it. And then it sat dormant again for the rest of the winter. That's what happens in the, in the Midwest. <laughs> the local regulars on the weekends would have us fire up the fire pits and they'd hang out out there. So that was cool. One of the other things that I really remember from being there was that you have a great rustic food menu. I assume you have a scratch kitchen there? Yes, we do. Okay. So everything is scratch, made fresh in-house, uh, all the way down to our hand-cut fries that we cut every single day. How often do you change that menu up? They're shooting for just to do it uh, about twice a year, just kind of try to change it with the seasons and offer a more seasonal fare. Mm-hmm. So I know they just did a little menu change and things definitely are steering more towards that comfort food right now, which is kind of what people are looking for getting into the colder months here yeah. in Michigan. It's sort of a related question. Um, you know, I know a lot of... Um, a lot of people in the industry, the food service industry, are having trouble with the staffing, with getting product in. Are, are you experiencing the same kind of problem that, that others are experiencing? You know, this is a question that it's got a double answer for myself because I've been in and around the industry for a long time and it's always been this way. Okay. So it's really nothing new. But with all the added challenges over the past couple of years and kind of everyone being short-staffed, it really has been a little bit harder. People can go into, you know, there's new industries in Michigan that never existed. So a lot of people move laterally. I think during the pandemic, there's a lot of people that were closer to retirement age or already at retirement age. They decided to leave and retire and, you know, companies had to completely shift everything. So I think that also lends to the shortage and it really has been difficult. The hardest part is keeping people working in the kitchen. So that's like a revolving door. We just recently had to change our hours and close down on Mondays because it's the slowest day of the week, which is pretty common in the industry. 
board for Mondays to be slower. So we decided to close down on Mondays temporarily until we can find some more kitchen staff. Then when they worked out the new menu, they really tried to streamline everything to kind of take some of the burden off of the kitchen. You know, that seems to be working right now. I know we love to be open seven days again, but we also don't want to put that extra stress on the employees because that is when you start to lose your good people. Sometimes you don't realize that the people that work for you are probably one of the best investment commodities that you have, you know, for your business. You really have to be careful about that. You really do. I think the hardest thing I hear a lot of different people in the industry talk about managers and owners is uh, employee retention. Like that's what everybody is spending a lot of time focusing on. Like how do we retain our employees and and make sure that they're comfortable and happy and, and not overworked and not stressed out and paying extra attention to that. And then I've, I've even seen where sometimes you got to be a little forgiving because that employee was a little bit stressed out because they've been working too much that all into account and make sure that they decide to stick around. Yeah. And you can't just keep throwing money at people to to keep them around either. So it's intangible things. I think you have to really focus on those personal touches that can only come from you as archival brewing. You know, what are the little perks that people get? What are some of your favorite events to attend or host? Um, I ran into you at Burning Foot Beer Fest, which is one of my favorites of the year, and I always look forward to it. I have it on my calendar, but what other ones do you, uh, yeah, well, you like you know, to go Burning to? Burning Foot was interesting. Uh, this was my very first year at that festival, and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot, a little bit extra work with all the sand, but I think just the way that it worked out was really cool. Some of the favorite events that I do, I do also do all of the Michigan Brewers Guild's festivals, which I think you were just talking about that on one of your previous podcasts. They do for a year, but this year they changed their format and they added a spring beer festival in Traverse City. So now they're doing five. I did That's not realize cool. that. <laughs> well, they, they wanted to do one about three years ago, but the shutdown happened. So with their own humor, they called it the, this year was the third annual inaugural Spring Beer Festival. And that one was pretty neat. Uh, They really do a good job. They've got 20 some years of experience of putting on these festivals. You know, in the past 15 years, they're doing four a year. I mean, that's an incredible amount of people that you're moving through to taste Michigan beer and really promote it and protect it. And they're celebrating their 25th anniversary this year. And uh, I think it's great because what they did for craft beer and the state of Michigan, just from doing those festivals as a nonprofit so they could raise money and lobby the Michigan legislature to make Michigan made craft beer more accessible to people and allow it to be distributed because I don't know if you remember this, but 25 years ago, everything was on-premise only. Microbrewery or a nanobrewery, that was the only place you could sell your beer. Everybody was getting frustrated with that, and they decided to start doing beer festivals to raise money to fight back. And 25 years later, where we're at, we've got Michigan beer that's distributed (laughs) all over the world. So I always like to go back and continue to support what they're doing because they've brought us to where we are. And it's great to see what the future holds if we still keep doing it with their format. Yeah. One of my goals, one of these years, is to try to make, it was all four, now all five festivals within the year. (laughs) 
I've been a, it, I've been a member, yeah. card carrying member now for two years. So I'm fairly new to, you know, the Michigan Brewers Guild, but I also see like you, that it is something that really goes towards preservation and expansion of the Michigan market. You know, I live in Ohio, but I grew up in Michigan and I'm only five minutes from Michigan itself. So, you know, I do a lot of tri-state beverage hopping around here. So anything to promote the, uh, the industry, uh, I'm all for that. What kind of distribution do you have there at the tap room? So currently, uh, we're about to ramp up our distribution. We've been doing um, our keg distribution. And, you know, we're all the way up in Sault Ste. Marie to the east side of the state in Detroit, you know, Lansing, Ann Arbor, all up and down the Lake Michigan coast uh, before summertime kind of tried to get out to a lot more of the touristy towns and get our beer out in front of people in that method and really try to market ourselves. So we now are going into cans. So we've okay. got four different beers packaged in cans, six packs right now. And the next push is going to be to start getting on shelves locally. And we're going to grow from there. So this is a brand new uh, expansion for us. So we're pretty excited about that. Our can art is really kick-ass. Like, I can't wait to see it. It's so cool. You can check it out on our social media. We do have some pictures of them there. And uh, that's going to be our next big push. Uh, and then we're expanding our brewery every little bit that we can as we go along to keep up with that. You know, it's a lot more production that we need to do in order to to get out there and try to get as many places as we, as we can. You know, eventually the goal is to be all over the state in cans as well as kegs. And then kind of after that, we can push into the Midwest and get into Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and stuff like that. So it's kind of baby steps right now, but, um, sure. but we're getting there. We're excited about it. The brewery's expanding with the space that we have and uh, it's just getting more and more cramped in there. So hopefully with this next push, we can really take a step back and look and see that, hey, we're going to have to build another building here to get this done, uh, which is nice because we are in a position where we have seven acres, so we have room to grow. So Yeah, that is really nice. How, how large is the expansion, like square footage that you're going to be doing? So they haven't decided that yet. What we're doing right now is we're adding more um, fermenters. So we've got a 10-barrel system with about eight 10-barrel fermenters right now. I'm working on getting another 50 barrels worth of fermentation tanks soon. They have a plan on how they're going to fit it all into the space. I trust these guys. You know, the, the brewers are usually also pseudo-engineers. They're generally able to think outside of the box. So I'm excited to see how they're going to fit these 50 extra barrels of fermentation <laughs> vessels into that space. But uh but I, I, I know they can do Where there's a beer, there's a way. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Last call. It's nearly time to wrap things up, but first, one more for the road. Well, before I do, I want to apologize for airing the wrong location of Southern Grist Brewing in the previous episode. Southern Grist is actually in Nashville, Tennessee, and not Wisconsin like I had originally mentioned. Even the everyman gets confused sometimes with all the research he is doing on your behalf. Well, this episode, I'm drinking Azure's Wreath from Archival Brewing in Belmont, Michigan. It is a sati-style beer coming in at 6% ABV. From the brewer. 
Azure's Wreath is a Finnish farmhouse ale made with fresh juniper berries. Zero hop additions alongside a clean grain bill of rye and barley malts using triple decoction brewing method. Light and easy drinking. Without further delay, I got this one as a crawler directly from the brewery and want to give a big thanks to the Danimal himself for gifting the everyman with some historical beers to review. So as I pour this out into my pint glass, this beer pours a nice, deep, kind of amber color. As I mentioned, this is a sati style. It's definitely an interesting beer. It's got a little bit of a funky, fruity aroma on it. It's uh, different than anything that uh, I've ever uh, ever had before. You get a little bit of the malt, maybe a little bit of the juniper. First sip impression, it's got a uh, just a nice balance of, of sweetness, uh, not a lot of bitterness to it. it has like a uh, definitely a, a more earthy kind of berry-like finish on it. This is actually one of the first beers that I ever tried at Archival, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have them on the podcast. So it's super easy drinking. Again, it's got kind of a, a funky, malty backbone on it. Just really, really tasty. I really don't have a whole lot more to say other than if you ever get up there, you need to check it out. So up until I actually had Azure's Wreath, I'd never had a sati before. I'm a big fan of farmhouse-style ales, so this one really intrigued me from the get-go. Very, very smooth. It uh, Again, it's got a little bit of a lightness on the palate, almost soft. Uh, finishes off with uh, a little bit of maltiness, just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. But it ends with this uh, berry-like finish on it. Uh, it's quite good. I've never had anything quite like it, to be honest with you. So Archival, I give this one a solid three and a half tasters out of five on the flight board. Cheers! If you've got a beer you'd like me to drink and describe, leave a comment below. If you're a brewer and have one in mind, direct message me on Instagram and let's see what we can do. That's all for this episode of the 5 Beer Plan. With so many podcasts out there, thanks for choosing to listen to mine. Join me next time as I reflect on my first year hosting the podcast, review another historic beer, and conclude my conversation with Dan Potter from Archival Brewing in Belmont, Michigan. Remember to hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes. I'd love to hear from you, so please follow me on Instagram, 5beerplan2022, and leave a comment to let me know whether you have homebrewed before or not. Be sure to support your local breweries, choose your beers wisely, and drink them responsibly. Until next time, keep walking your ale trail, and stay thirsty, my friends.